0: Hi everyone, welcome to Dismantling Injustice, the podcast of the Brooklyn Community Bail Fund. At BCBF, we work with allies to free people from incarceration, whether it's prison, jail, immigrant detention, or surveillance. On this podcast, we offer analysis on issues affecting folks who encounter the criminal legal and immigration systems. You can learn more about our work by visiting us at brooklynbailfund.org. I'm Carl Hammond Lipscomb, BCBF's Director of Advocacy and Policy, and I'm here with my co-pilot, Saleh Israel, BCBF's Director of Special Initiatives and the producer and creator of this podcast. Today we're joined by our awesome colleague, Zoe Adele, BCBF's Criminal, Legal, and Advocacy Manager, to talk about the Manhattan District Attorney's race and the importance of prosecutors in decarceration. Hey, Zoe. Hi. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, so uh, I wanted to start out by um, asking you, Zoe, what role do prosecutors play in the criminal legal system?
1: Thanks. Uh, I mean, prosecutors, they play a hugely important role, and I would argue potentially like the most important role in the criminal legal system. Um, they They're the top law enforcement official in the county. They have the power to decide who to prosecute, whether to bring charges against someone, whether to offer a plea, whether to request bail, and what sentences to recommend. Um, And so their decisions impact um, communities all across um, the city in terms of who's incarcerated for what and for how long Um, Mm. and their decisions beyond that kind of have have a real human impact there are immense harms to prosecution so even kind of before um, conversations around bail or someone spends nights or weeks in jail um, even deciding to bring charges and to prosecute someone um, can have a ton of, of consequences that affect people their whole lives, and that could look like um, eviction, um, unemployment, um, trauma um, that that could result in in lifelong um, emotional um, and physical uh, trauma, and and something I. I do want to note kind of about prosecutors um, and their role in the criminal legal system is that in court, we hear prosecutors refer to themselves as the people um, all the time. And kind of they're, they're using their discretion, and all of their decisions um, are really being done in, in the name of the people. Um and even though CAs are elected, um, there's really little to no transparency and accountability for these actors that have so much power um in a system that that they use to to target mostly black and brown people um and, and really use this discretion whenever possible. To jail people um, and incarcerate people, or subject people to um, coercive control and supervision
0: and surveillance. Mm. Thanks, Zoe. Um, just to backtrack a little, I think you mentioned something about you know elections. Um, uh, this just you know, just as a follow-up question: How are prosecutors chosen? Who hires um, the the head prosecutor in a given area?
1: the the public um so prosecutors or the the head prosecutor is the district attorney um, and they serve four-year terms um so in manhattan and in brooklyn this year the um, sitting da's are their terms are up and there will be an election in manhattan um the there are about there are eight candidates um, vying for the, the position of Manhattan DA right now. And in Brooklyn, although um, the current Brooklyn DA is up for re-election, um, no, one's, no one's running against him. Um, so he's, he's up for re-election uncontested. Um, and, and both primaries are coming up June of this year, um, June 22nd. So voters in, in Manhattan will have the opportunity to vote for the next Manhattan DA, um, who will, I think as I mentioned before, um, it is, it is a really important position that has, um, an effect on thousands of people, um, and, and a position that I think we can trace a line from um, the mass criminalization and mass incarceration that we're seeing kind of directly back to the, the district attorney. Mm.
0: So I know that you, um, Zoe, and Brooklyn Community Bail Fund um, is involved in Manhattan DA's race. I know that you, Sally, you've done a, a little bit of work around the Manhattan DA's race as well. Why is the Manhattan DA's race um, in particular important?
1: So the Manhattan DA's race in particular is, is a really important one, I think, um, because not only the fact that the DA um, in this position has, has so much power and wields so much power in the, in the criminal legal system, um, but Manhattan and the DA's office in Manhattan specifically is one of the largest. Um, DA offices in the city. Um, and I think that at least for this, this race, a lot of eyes are on Manhattan. Um, and this is, this is a time to, to have candidates, um, running for Manhattan DA kind of commit to, to decarceral policies. Um, and I will, I'll note that since the district attorney's office is it's a structural part of the, the criminal legal system. Um, so really, as long as this office exists, we'll, we'll continue to see um, family separation and our neighbors being caged. Um, but the next DA in Manhattan will have a huge role to play in whether or not Manhattan can kind of tip the balance towards reduced prosecution, punishment, and the criminalization of communities most targeted um, by the criminal legal system, which is black and brown communities. Um, and I think another another reason that the um, Manhattan DA's race is so important is, I think mean, right now about a third of the jail population in New York City as a whole is coming from Manhattan. Um, so as just one out of the five boroughs, one third of people in jails are, um, are folks who are coming, coming through the Manhattan DA's office. Um, so the Manhattan DA really has um, an important role to play if we're going to start thinking about how we can address mass criminalization um, and mass incarceration.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, just to follow up, and I'm going to throw this question to you as well, Sally, but also if you could talk to, so, you know, in New York in particular, there's been a lot of activism and attention rightfully drawn toward the NYPD and the role of policing, um, on communities of color, on poor communities, um, and on incarceration. Um, from what Zoe just said, um, prosecutors play an equally important role in driving incarceration. And so, Sally, can you, can you talk about that a bit? And also, just from your perspective, why the Manhattan DA's race and just all DA's races are important? Yeah, I think, I think also with the
2: Manhattan DA's race, this is the first race we're having since everything happened, I think. This is the first opportunity we had since the death of George Floyd and the activism that, that followed to really see how things are going to change with regards to how things operate in New York City. Uh, so from that perspective, all eyes are on Matt and DA's office because people want to see, you know, where New York City as a whole is going. And this is the first place to get a real glimpse of that. And I think from from my perspective, just, uh, you know, building on what, what Zoe said in terms of the role of prosecutors. You know, when I, when, I watch, when I watch the major cases nationally and I see when something happens, like what happened to George Floyd and I hear stuff like, oh, we're investigating whether or not to bring charges. And those are the DA's office basically making those statements. And I'm like, as a person who was incarcerated in New York City and was arrested in New York City, you know, the cops see me on Wednesday and on Thursday I was arrested, on Monday I was arraigned. It was like not this drawn out long process mm-hmm. about, oh, we have to do all this investigation. So I think, you know, and that was a matter of how DA's offices across the country and particularly in New York City for me, how they go about elevating, you know, what's the police report to a charge to indictment. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that struck me during the forum that we had, if anybody saw it, when the question was raised about the role of DA's and this idea of, as a matter of course, elevating charges to indictments, there, that you know, uh, I think w- one of the candidates, uh, they responded, well, you know, we don't just elevate, you know, there's a prize, a grand jury. And what people don't know is, people don't even get an opportunity to testify it on their own behalf a lot of times, a grand jury. Uh, w- when I went, somehow a number was said when I was in court and that number meant that my, my, I was waiving my grand jury, right, and I didn't even know it, right? And it was like, yo, I had a, you know, at, at, for my original hearing, I had this, uh, this court appointed attorney and, it was, and they were saying, I didn't understand any of these numbers. It was like, 190 this, 160 this, 160 that. And then somebody me, you know, you got to go to your grand jury, right? And what I didn't know was it already happened, and I wasn't there. And my lawyer couldn't ask cross-examine anybody that wrote a police report at the, you know, the grand jury. So the prosecution's decision to submit that to the grand jury was not as involved as people think it is in terms of a whole lot of processes that happen. And in the, the actual grand jury process is not like this process that you think plays out in a courtroom with a regular jury. And so once you recognize that, you start to recognize how much power a DA has in taking an incident, a situation, from point A, which is the moment of interaction with the police, to point Z, which is, you know, trial and conviction. Uh, So I think from that perspective, for me, hearing some of what uh, some of the candidates have to say about what they think the role of the prosecution is in that that situation is, uh, is important. I think that shouldn't be lost on us.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, when I was a public defender, there was a joke that the DA could indict a ham sandwich if it if if they wanted to. Um, and so um so you're you know you're absolutely right, and you raise really important points about um, just you know what have these candidates committed to? And so um, I wanted to throw it to you, Zoe. Um, you know, I know that um a group of organizations, including Um, BCBF released a people's policy platform uh, last month, calling on the candidates to commit to decarceration and defunding the office of the Manhattan DA, amongst other things. Um, Can you talk about some of the specific commitments that um, the group has asked of candidates and um, what's been their response so far?
1: Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think there are, there's a a long list of, of commitments that we ask from candidates, ranging from um, practices around requesting bail, pretrial detention, um, rele- supporting the release of people during public health crises, um, and extending that to like other emergencies beyond the, the current pandemic. Um, and I think that kind of the wide ranging commitment. Um, on that platform, really demonstrate kind of the the wide ranging power of of the DA's office that they have control over um, over so much, um, and there are so many places for them to to exert their their influence. Um, I think I think one thing that I personally was been really interested to hear. From candidates, were their um, commitments around not requesting bail um, or remand, so holding someone free trial um, and and kind of hearing from, I think most candidates that they agree to stop requesting money bail because um, mm-hmm. they're and against the. The criminalization of poverty and, and agree that, um, money bail is fundamentally unjust. Um, but then kind of when we press them on whether they will stop requesting, um, remand at, at arraignment, um, knowing how their requests and recommendations influence of the outcomes at, at arraignments, um, I think that's where things get a little fuzzier um, and kind of thinking about if, if candidates are really serious about, um, about protecting and upholding people's right to the presumption of innocence and, um, and the right to freedom and safety in um, due process then I think this is another really important piece of that conversation. Um, and then, kind of another piece is the is whether or not they'll just end up replacing money bail and pretrial detention with other forms of carceral control. So, um, just directing people to supervised release um, or other mandated programs. Um, that really just kind of widen and expand the ways that um, law enforcement uh, controls communities of color that are targeted by the system. Um, so I think that, that's one commitment that, I mean, personally, I'm kind of interested to to dig into a little bit more. Um, with candidates and see where they stand on that. I think others, um, other commitments that um, to highlight are kind of also their their policies around declining to prosecute, so ending, using their power um, and discretion to end the case before it even makes it into the courtroom um, and Hearing from candidates about um, whether or not they'll consider immigration consequences at every stage of the process.
0: Mm, you touch on so many important points there, Zoe, a lot of gems in there. And, you know, one thing you mentioned was, you know, these are, you know, uh, you know, you mentioned that some of these are just really Personally important to you and important to um, the group of organizations that um, released this policy platform, but um a lot of what you mentioned, there's really you know public sentiment is also moving in that direction. If um, nothing else, one thing we got out of the protests in the aftermath of um, George Floyd's death um, last summer and the just the continued um, mass um, uprisings were that. People are really tired of the ways in which um, the criminal legal system targets communities of color and they want to see concrete change. And so I'd argue that these are, you know, this is something that the public wants to see. Um, there's almost a mandate for um, the next DA in Manhattan, but across the, the but DAs across the city and, and really nationally to address criminalization. Um, and so now, Sally. a few weeks ago, you had the opportunity to host a candidate forum um, that was um, co-sponsored by BCBF, um, amongst other organizations, where we got to hear from the contenders. Um, what were your takeaways from the forum? Did um, anything surprise you? And, you know, I'm going to, you know, you can also chime in as well, Zoe.
2: Yeah, I, think, I think the one thing that surprised me was, I think it was like uh, 80% of the candidates said they support defunding the police. I think th- there were some other things that i you know i, I don't think i the people who were listening understood uh i mean the trial tax right it was a question around ending the trial tax and you know that, that term what does that mean mm-hmm. it means that when someone is arrested and the presumption of innocence is 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 there and they exercise their right to a trial by a jury you know before they would, went to exercise their right they're often offered a plea deal in order to like say listen we don't want to go through this and most people if they if they're contend their innocence they don't take a plea deal and a lot of people do because they're in detention we'll get to that in a second talking about you know the the, the, the real implications behind cash bail and money bail uh and then when someone would or would not you know take the plea if they go to trial they were then given you know double the time because they went to trial so before they went to trial it was like well we think the crime you committed Right. We're going to give you a, a lesser a lesser offense. We're going to find you guilty. Of, we're going to give you less time. But if you go to trial, just know we're going to give you this, which is kind of like a fair tactic. And, you know, we, we, we like to believe that we have a system that works in this country uh, that oh, you know, you here's stuff like where well, they went to trial. The jury decided. Right. And a lot of times, you know, there, there are a lot of flaws that happen <laughs> throughout the process of a trial that could determine the outcome. And we've had, you know, particularly in New York City, we have slews of cases that have been overturned. Because of all kinds of prosecutorial misconduct or police misconduct about the way certain facts that were presented to the jury were not were not actually facts at all mm-hmm. so and and but this idea of pleading out because you don't you're afraid of being given more time is very real. similarly, people we notice that people who are detained on you know detained with money bill they can't afford they're you know t- much more likely to 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 take a plea. And say they did something they didn't do because they just can't function in prison or in detention, and they want to get out to their families. They want to get back to their jobs. So I think all of this is part of the, part of the same prosecutorial process now, where this idea of leveraging, you know, leveraging one's freedom, despite the presumption of innocence, has become a part of the prosecutorial process. It's like a tactic and a the vehicle they use. I mean, quite naturally. I mean, it comes natural for them to, at this stage in most, uh, you know departments across the country it comes natural for them to use these tactics in order to like move things along mm-hmm. which which is I, again the question of the trial tax is just as important as the question of you know the question of detention money bail which is if we hold you long enough and we and we and we and we, and we basically threaten to give you enough time you'll help us get rid of this process mm-hmm. uh so from, i mean that's something that stuck out to me the, the fact that you know some of the candidates they said they, that they were uh they would you know stop using the trial tax, but the other side of it is i they could say that without anyone being able to hold them accountable because most people don't know what the trial tax is mm-hmm. you know and so the biggest thing to me was how do we hold whoever becomes a candidate accountable for what they're saying they're agreeing now that they support or don't support and i'm I'm not quite sure that there are mechanisms in place for us as a public to do that, and you know we, we talked about stuff like getting community boards more engaged in you know reviewing what happens when there's police interactions with the community. Every, a lot of the candidates said supported that, but what does it mean to like, you know, we haven't heard a serious plan about what it means to implement something like that. Or more importantly, how, how can we hold you responsible for that? Which is a different question, right? You support this, well, what are you going to do when you're elected to ensure that we can hold you accountable for the fact that you've decided and agreed that this is something you're going to do? The DA's office is a very huge, you know, bureaucracy. Uh, what does it mean for a lot of the stuff that, he, that a particular candidate supports to trickle down to the, what's actually happening in the courtroom, to trickle down the actual implementations that prosecutors, right, assistant DAs, are actually you know implementing as they go about handling cases? You know, when we hear a candidate say, oh, I'm not going to bring charges on you know, it, we have candidates put out lists of things they're not going to charge. Well, most DAs don't, the, the actual DA himself is not, or herself are not, are, are not the ones that are going to actually make those decisions, it's going to be the prosecutors that have been there long before they're coming, who have long-standing relationships with the departments, the police departments across mm-hmm. the, their districts, right? And they're still, they're going to have to deal with those officers in a way that they feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And do these new policies allow that to happen? So that is what I am I, more concerned about. And we saw this when there was bail reform, right? We saw senators and congressmen say, we're with it, and they signed and then. You know, months later we saw, oh, we just can't do we, we don't like being uncomfortable with the fact that we did the right thing. We don't like be, the fact that, you know, doing the right thing makes us feel uncomfortable. So we're gonna go and do, you know, something that's not the right thing because we're more comfortable doing it. And I'm not sure, you know, beyond the surface of things that, you know, candidates said they would support, what it means for us as a public to be able to like hold them to it and give them a mandate, so to speak, right? What does it mean to elect the DA with a mandate? We know what it means like presidents and governors. What does it mean to elect the DA with a mandate?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, like uh, what you're saying makes me think, you know, there's always a huge uproar and a lot of attention when something egregious happens, like you know, the, you know, what happened to Khalif Browder, um, you know, it was, I, you know, I saw that story, um, a lot, you know, there were documentaries, there were radio interviews, everyone was talking about it around bail reform, but I really think of, um, Kalief Browder's story as being just as much about injustice at the hands of prosecutors, um, uh, for, you know, people that didn't know, Kalief Browder was charged with, um, in effect, um, Um, you know like taking a book bag and he maintained his innocence um, and because of that he went to Rikers Island he was offered a plea that would have got you know gotten him released Um, but because he wouldn't take the plea because he was going to go to trial um, you know he was the DAS for bail and he was sent to Rikers um, you know because he wouldn't effectively he wouldn't pay a trial tax and he Spent three years on Rikers, um, most of it in solitary confinement. And, um, you know, eventually he was released. The case was dismissed because there wasn't enough evidence against him. Um, And eventually he ended up um, committing suicide um, as a result of the mental health issues um, that arose um, while he was um, at Rikers Island. Um, And, you know, he was a teenager at the time. And, you know, so like stories like this, like... They, we shouldn't have to wait until something, like what happened to Khalif Browder, happened, um, to pay attention to DA's races and to, um, you know, to move policy. Um, Zoe, did you have anything to add? Was there anything in particular that surprised you about um, the candidates' responses at the forum, or did you take away anything in particular?
1: Yeah, I think similarly to to Solly, um, it was interesting. Hear that! Six out of eight candidates said they support defunding the police, um, and then they were also asked um, about whether they think there's a problem of systemic racism in law enforcement. Um, and that that just got me thinking, kind of knowing that the DA's office um, is is a structural part of. Of law enforcement and of the the criminal legal system, um, thinking about kind of how the DA's office um, itself plays a role um, in in systemic racism um, and kind of just yeah, got me thinking about things that that I would be interested to hear um, further from from candidates about how they perceive their own role, um, in the, in the system.
0: Yeah, that makes absolute sense. And, um, you know, the race is nowhere near over. We have quite a few more months. Um, and we have a lot of candidates that's going to whittle down hopefully, um, before the primary. Um, but Zoe, what else are you working on with respect to the Manhattan DA's race? So I think,
1: I think you touched on this since there are, there are so many candidates, um, in the race right now and, and so many different issues and areas, um, that their influence touches on. Um, we're, we're working on a, a voter guide, um, to kind of lay out where all the candidates stand on, on all these different issues, um, to hopefully help the public, um, Take in kind of all of all this information and help help the public make a decision when it comes time to actually cast a vote um, for the next the next DA. Um, and I think a few other things that that we're working on is we're we're going to continue to work with the um, the People's Coalition for Manhattan DA Accountability leading up to the um manhattan da election um and i just want to encourage folks listening um, to to check out that website um, because it has kind of the full that's where you can learn more about the coalition um, the full list of demands from the, the coalition and then also watch a recording from that um that candidate forum that we had in January in case, um, in case you missed it. Um, and that, that website is, um, people for Um, and then I think mean, something else I just wanted to to touch on was, or is that, I think it was three years ago now, we, um, we created a program, um, court watch NYC to, to keep an eye on, on prosecutors, because we, we understand their, their massive role in the system, um, and how little transparency and accountability there really is. So wanting to get kind of everyday New Yorkers into the courtroom, which are places that are open for the, the public, um, and start sharing what goes on, um, behind those those doors um and and really kind of shine a light on what prosecutors are doing 24 7 um, and how their decisions impact the people of new york um so we we actually have a training coming up um so i encourage um, folks to also visit the court watch website um, CourtWatchNYC.org to learn more about um, BCBF's Court Watch program and to, to get
0: involved. <clears throat> oh, go ahead, Sally.
2: Yeah, I just I just want to add that I think what what BCBF has done with you know participating and now you know driving Court Watch NYC, the, the key that Joy said was everyday New Yorkers like you know, there are many people that's been impacted by what's happening now, particularly with the criminal justice system. And sometimes we feel like we have to be a lawyer. We have to be, you know, a trained professional in order to like have an impact. And what's being done with Court Watch NYC is with those trainings, you know, we're training people how to go in and how to observe and identify where the process of breaking down Mm at. And that means that anyone can sign up for that, those workshops and anyone could participate in Court Watch NYC. And we encourage everyone to do that, you know, In particular i'm I'm calling out people of color like you know visit the website check it out and definitely i encourage you to to do these to do these workshops and participate because right now as in many other places you know the footprint of people of color in this particular space uh when it comes to this type of public advocacy and public watchdogging is is not as big as it should be Mm -hmm. Uh, i think carl you mentioned before when when we see these high profile cases that come we get galvanized and we go out there are ways to be engaging and participating and ensuring that stuff like that doesn't happen before it happens and a lot of that gets done through programs and like initiatives like court watch nyc mm-hmm. so i suggest everyone you know specifically people who have been impacted if you have a a brother or a son a mother or you know a distant cousin that's, that's you know went through this process you know don't feel like you're helpless if, if you went through that process and now you're home and you're out of that process don't feel like you're helpless. You, your voice still matters, and it's still a way for you to be active, and Quote Watch NYC is, I think, a great vehicle for you to, you engage, to get engaged.
0: Thanks, and um, with that, um, yeah. Thank you so much for joining us, Zoe. Um, again to learn more about BCBF you can visit us online at brooklynbailfund.org you can also follow us or DM us on twitter at bkbailfund or instagram at brooklynbailfund until next time and until we are all free peace out